So we are in the middle of number 308. Do I have any questions or comments from something left over? If not, we can start right in. So we're right in the middle, and this were these five points that uh, Swamiji had describing Master's mission. Um, the first was, uh, just to review, the first was that it's not only for monks and nuns, but it's for married people. And that the second was that he came to introduce a balanced education. The third, and I'll start reading, he came to show that the arts both can and should be a means of inspiring people and not merely of entertaining them. He came to show that truth need not be declared in angry protest against some social injustice or error, that it can be revealed joyfully as an aid toward people's own enlightenment. Um, in conclusion, his mission was to show all humanity that human life should be a divine service, that its true purpose is not self-aggrandizement and not living for number one, but living with self-expansive ideals. In short, his mission was by no means only to establish a monastery, as some people believe, an activity that he himself postponed for years in order to address more pressing needs, and that he left finally to be developed by others. His mission was to uplift and spiritualize all society. So let's go back and deal with those. We talked last week about uh, householders as well as monastics, and therefore, the, in keeping with Swami's conclusion there, that his master's mission was to uplift all of society. By definition, if you come to help only those who are able to renounce the world and live a monastic lifestyle, just by definition, if you're only for monastics, you're only going to be for a handful of people. And you can imagine an avatar or a teacher coming that way. Sri Yukteswar, for example, had a very, very small mission, and he only wanted to work with people who were um, exceedingly dedicated, and then not even very many. And then after this incarnation was over, he went to Hiranyaloka, where he said the highly refined causal beings are more able to tune into what he has to offer. So it's not by definition that a master has to be broad-based. But the history of master's incarnations, as William the Conqueror, as um, Ferdinand III, Fernando III, and Arjuna, even in earlier life, you know, they were all lives that just had huge external impact. It wasn't really just taking a few. You bear in mind, you know, if if a few people are 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 very powerfully endowed, then they'll carry it forward. And in fact, in the mission of Sri Teshwar, what he did was train Master. And once Master was trained, Master did the the world-changing event, but Sri Yukteswar personally only acted as the catalyst for that happening. But part of um, why it's important, and it comes in other, as we, as we go on through this part of the book, um, the, actually through the rest of this 308, is when you understand that Master's intention was to uplift all of society, those of us who are disciples who will carry on that work and the disciples, generations to come, it, you, you have to think what Master was trying to accomplish. If you can 
in order to be able to tune in and be creative yourself. Um, when Swamiji was alive, he often made suggestions that one way or another seemed difficult to implement or perhaps not ideal in terms of accomplishing whatever people thought they were trying to accomplish. Maybe people thought they weren't practical or whatever it might have been. And I, in my early years with him, often, like other people, would have a reaction to his suggestions and many times I pushed against his suggestions in a way that was not helpful to him or to me. But I just did that. Gradually I began to approach it in a slightly different way. I began to ask myself the question, this is what he suggested that we do. What is he trying to accomplish? And when I asked myself, what is he trying to accomplish? Often then I could work with him um, in a way that elicited a better response from him that when I, than when I just tried to react against what he was doing. Because it was often true that I might have known more facts about a situation, known more about the resources we could bring to bear, known more about mitigating conditions, that all would bear on the, the decision he was trying to make. And so I could be helpful to him if I stopped to think, what is he trying to accomplish? And he himself expressed frustration that a lot of times he's making suggestions really just to get a creative flow of ideas going. And he said people will take those suggestions dogmatically even when they have a better idea themselves. But they'll just say, well, this is what Swami said we should do instead of what is he trying to accomplish and how can we help him? So this whole picture of what Master's mission actually is is extremely important because we'll meet many crossroads and increasingly in the future asking ourselves, you know, what, what did Master come here to do? Because if we only continually look to the past and say, well, Master did this, this is what we'll do. I mean, as an example, and it's not, it's just a factual one. When Master first arrived in America in 1920s, uh, correspondence courses were a brand new thing. And it was a really sort of exciting new way for people to learn things. So he immediately started doing correspondence courses through the mail, printed, printed through the mail, because it was just the way communication happened. Nowadays, of course, things happen through the internet. I mean, I feel sorry for the poor mailman. All he ever brings me is things that I almost always immediately just throw away. I mean, the mailman used to be a very important person. And now he's just, you know, he's a third-rate power, you know. <laughs> he just doesn't do anything that really matters. Or he does very little that really matters in anybody's life. And the little bit that he used to do has now been replaced by UPS or FedEx. Meaning that, that circumstances shift. And if you have only in your mind that Master did mail-order lessons... You're not standing back and asking, well, what was Master trying to accomplish with his mail-order lessons? And you realize that what he was trying to accomplish was reach people, make it convenient, um, uh, have a broad-based appeal, have, uh, be in touch with more people than he could meet personally, you know, just all kinds of things. So then you ask yourself, well, today, what would be the most, the best way to do that? Or, if an opportunity comes to... Um, you know, just 
to take meditation, for example, into an environment where Master never taught it before. Maybe you're going to become contracted with the uh, San Francisco 49ers because they want to learn meditation. And then you have to stop and ask yourself whether or not that's a valid thing to do or not, but you don't have a question of whether Master ever taught meditation to a professional sports team because no professional sports team was interested. And it wasn't that he wouldn't have done it, it's that the opportunity never came to him. So when Swamiji explains, you know, these are the points that were really important, then we can all begin to think, even just that the arts can and should be a means of inspiring people. I mean, that is such a wide open door. You know, where where can that take us? He doesn't have the extra line, which I often just put in because I've heard Swami say it. It's also a means of uplifting ourselves. This is what he writes in Art as a Hidden Message. He writes about the extreme importance of creative art for the, indi- for the individual devotee and how it can clarify our consciousness and our feelings. I spoke about this at great length two Sundays ago, so I'm not going to repeat all of that. If anybody who's listening wants to, s- to hear it, you can go on to wherever you find it, on the YouTube channel for Sunday two weeks ago, whatever the date is today, a week in it, two Sundays ago. Um, but it also, a, a means of inspiring and not just entertaining also includes the artist. So, so then if one has creative impulses, which many, uh, many devotees do quite naturally, you ask yourself, well, how can I use this not merely to entertain people, not merely to make money, but how also to inspire people. And then all of a sudden you have this huge guideline that can just go really in almost any direction, um, which, is, it, which is why Swami at the end of this says, Master did not come merely to found a monastery, as some people say. He's not making reference there, but Self-Realization Fellowship has embraced the monastic part of the spiritual life with a fervor that Swami Kriyananda said is, is greater than the emphasis that Master himself put on it. And so that goes back to that he really wanted, it was for monks and nuns. That's why when he started, he wanted there to be communities. He didn't just want monasteries, he wanted communities. And he himself tried to found one in Encinitas. He had monastics because an avatar would naturally draw people who have that as their karma, because it's a it's a very dedicated way of life, and and people who had the karma to be close to master naturally some of them would be it, for them it would be appropriate, because it's always appropriate for many people, but master himself took in married couples and tried to to make um, you know, make what Ananda subsequently made, which is a fully dedicated ashram life that is has as much power as traditional monasteries but include families with children because that was a fundamental premise of his. So when Swami draws these distinctions, it's not merely that he's having a discussion between SRF and Ananda. He's having a discussion with generations of disciples so that generations of disciples can feel that I am moving in accordance with what Master's broader vision was. And the, the way Swami works is he doesn't just tell us in a list, this is what Master wanted. He always says things in such a way that it gives you a, 
the understanding and the ideas we need to add our own intelligence and creativity to it. Merely to say, for example, the arts are for inspiration, not only for entertainment. I mean, that's just so open. And, and you can go for a very long time using that as a criteria, constantly. At one point, um, Marcel and I were working on a, another uh, theater production, which turned into Whispers, and he was working on a script, which... Um, in the end, we at least put aside for right now. But in order to cre- create dramatic tension in that script, he, was, he, he brought in a couple of darker characters because that's normally how you do it in spiritual things. And I wasn't happy with that script. It's just my, my own opinion. But this was, it was an interesting experience for me to, to, to watch it. I wasn't happy with that script. And then I finally said, you know, I just don't really want anybody in our sangha to have to act those dark characters. And I don't think people at Ananda would enjoy them. You know, it just, why would we want to watch people be mean and ugly? And in that same context, and Marcel understood exactly because he, you know, and it could be argued, and I can imagine, you know, a dramatic script that makes a powerful spiritual point of view. But in our little context, it it wasn't something I wanted to do. But in the same token, when we were starting, but in the same way, when we were starting uh, the process of the movie that eventually became Finding Happiness, um, there was a little bit of a plot outline, and the plot outline was what we ended up using mostly, which is this journalist in New York has an assignment, and she comes to California. She's fictional, but then she arrives at Ananda, and everything after that is the actual Ananda, which is what we did. But they were filling out her character, and she had a son in the, in the first early version, which never ended up. All of the backstory for her, much of which was filmed, all just got cut. It just slowed down the story and didn't really make anything work. She had an aunt who was dying and a few other things like this. <laughs> but in any case, you know, in the end, uh, movies are made in the editing room. And you, you end up looking at it. You think that really doesn't add. But she had a son. And part of the story was that her son was a pill. And he was estranged from her. And he was sort of dark. And, you know, had the usual teenage things like this. And he wasn't nice to his mother. And so that was supposed to create the dramatic tension. Swami said, that's not our vibration. He said, why do we want to just sit there and watch some miserable teenage child who's mean to his mother? (laughs) He said, why don't we make it a sweet relationship between himself and his mother? And the problem being that his college professors have persuaded him that life has no meaning. I mean, you know, there's the same thing. But I realized later, that's exactly the same thing. He said, it's not our vibration. You know, everybody else makes drama... By, by being downward. And he said, why, why would we do that? It's just like, oh, that's interesting. Why would we do that? Just because it's commonly done. It's in, it's in poor taste from his point of view. But, you know, the, those kinds of thoughts allow you. And at the same time, when we did The Land of Golden Sunshine, we had the dancers express the storm so they had to make a lot of noise and be real powerful and the movements were jagged and so on. But it was, it was fun. 
in the context and it and it created the contrast without in itself being um, harsh you know or 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 low consciousness is actually the word I want to use you know so you can see how very interesting it gets and that's why just a few sentences can give us as disciples lifelong instructions and it's very important and so that was the art and I love this one. He came to show that truth need not be declared as in angry protest against some social injustice or error, that it can be revealed joyfully as an aid toward people's own enlightenment. Many years ago, Swamiji was on some kind of a ecumenical panel. I believe it was in Calcutta, but it was somewhere in India. Um, uh, not it. W- it was in his... Well, actually, I don't know whether it was in his very early India pilgrimage, India time or after 2003. I think it was after 2003. And usually, if you're on such a panel, even if your theology may be different than someone else's, you're, you're respectful. I mean, here you are at an ecumenical event. You don't want to be pointing out that the guy before me, is that his theology is just really awful and everything about him is bad. It just doesn't make any sense. But what happened at this particular event is that there was a, he might have been an Episcopal priest, but he was a, he was a Christian uh, clergy person who, who gave this talk about how his actual words were, you must politicize your religion. And he, you know, he worked with the downtrodden and the underprivileged and the abused, and he basically told everyone in the room that if they weren't out there doing that kind of social upliftment, then they were betraying their religious faith, which was not really courteous of him. But uh, probably almost unique in my experience of Swamiji, he stood up and said, absolutely not, you don't have to do that at all. (laughs) Yeah, he just flatly contradicted it. He said the spiritual path is joy. And furthermore, you know, that kind of anger does not bring you into God consciousness. I mean, anger, you can't, you can't, the, the, the problem is people's consciousness. And if you try to solve the problem of consciousness with bad consciousness, it's not really going to go anywhere. But he just said, he, 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 well, he was, he felt the man needed to be corrected and he felt the point of view needed to be corrected. But a lot of people who are spiritually minded do end up making their religion political, I mean, or social injustice. And in truth, that's a, that's a you know, many such people are very self-sacrificing and very, very, very noble in what they're willing to do. So it, in, in itself, it's often a very powerful incentive for enormous ego transcendence and self-offering. So it's not the fact that one feels called to try to change the condition of the world. It was the anger that the man was expressing that was the objection to it. I mean, Gandhi is a perfect example of how he, you know, he stood up to injustice, but he was ex- extremely demanding uh, in terms of the consciousness he demanded and the self-discipline he demanded 
and the high vibrations that he demanded from the people who stood with him. So it, again, you have to look at it for what it really is, not for what it appears to be. But Swami takes it a whole step further in defining what Master said, it, that religion is not a protest against social injustice, but can be revealed joyously. Revealed joy, joyfully. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? I mean, we, what we're telling people is that, no, we're not going to fix the world and we're not going to overcome the bad guys, however we name them. We're just going to go more and more into a state of, of, of joyful understanding of the divine. Uh, that reminds me of when the, uh, the lawsuit was going on, and I didn't go, but quite a bunch of people went down to Los Angeles. And wasn't it true that Swami said he, wasn't, he was a little worried, but he said, as long as you don't go down and be angry... Isn't that right? He was more than a little worried. The context was that in the 11th year of litigation, um, after the the case, SRF's lawsuit against us, we thought was settled, the appeals court returned uh, two items to have to be reconsidered. And so we found ourselves back in court facing a trial, and we found ourselves back in an open-ended Um, uh, legal situation so the idea came that we would utilize our strength in numbers and try to influence the members of SRF to to stand up against what their board of directors was doing because even after 11 years of litigation most of the SRF members did not know what the board of directors was doing so we made the decision, which was controversial within Ananda, but we gained a reluctance, a reluctant approval to stage, to go to SRF's convocation and to stand on the sidewalks where the people going in and out of the hotel where it was held would see us and we, we would pass out literature and eventually we held placards that, that had... Um, meaningful statements on them. Why are devotees suing other devotees? Why have why has SRF spent $50 million trying to sue other devotees? Love, not lawsuits, things like that. But Swamiji uh, allowed us to make plans to do it, but when many other people who were not involved in the planning of it called him in great alarm about the potential negative consequences of what we were planning to do. He he would say things like, well, I understand why you feel that way. And things like, I've had some of those same questions myself. And then when he would call us, because it was being planned from Palo Alto, he would ask us what we were doing, and we would always, we, we were thinking it through very carefully. He would say something like, well... I guess you can just go, I guess you might as well just go ahead. Or, okay, you can keep going. You know, but he never said yes. So finally, we realized he was never saying yes. And we also realized that we'd probably actually never really given him a full opening to say yes or no. So we phoned him with great neutrality and said, um, what do you do? do you want us to not do this? And then he said, 
you know, it was right that you called. He'd been projecting that thought at us for some time, but we, we weren't picking it up, that we needed to become neutral and really listen. And we said, so what are you concerned about? He said, I'm afraid that our people will become angry. I said, you underestimate how well you've trained us, sir. And he said, you're naive. (laughs) He said, if you set up a confrontation, he said, people will get angry. I said, oh, Swamiji, we have no intention of confronting everyone. And this was the truth. We're going to hand out literature and we're going to sing, which we did. We sat sat and stood and we chanted and we sang Swami's songs. And we, we were not there to persuade anyone. We were there to educate them. We were, it was, it was a, an educational campaign and an opportunity to be together and sing. It was educational, but it was not intended to be persuasive. So then he said, uh, you must promise me that if even one person becomes angry, he said, you will immediately stop and come home. And I said, fine, that's not a problem. And not one person became angry. One person became slightly impatient. <laughs> but a person with a hot temper. And they saw themselves becoming impatient and then they stopped and walked away. But it was very hard to be upset when we were just chanting and singing for hours on end. But he just felt if we really, if anger really started, there would be no end to it. And, and nothing was worth it. But we did. We went and no one got angry. Not even close. We just, in fact, I myself was having such a good time. I had to hold my placard over my face because I was laughing so much, you know, it just was unseemly to be, you know, presenting such a serious issue in such a serious context and just be giggling and laughing the whole time. So I had to put my, I literally there, this is how I had to stand a lot because it was, I felt so joyful to be standing up for what we believed after having been trapped behind lawyers for more than a decade. It was the first time we ever did it ourselves, and it was just... And after it was all over, Swami said, there's a time for... I don't know his exact words because they were perfect. There's a time for inwardness, and there's a time for action, and this was the time for action. But he he didn't take a stand until after it was done. So that's the whole issue. But yeah, it was not a small, it was not a small reality. And uh, he really was really, really strong on the point. I was just confident. I, I just was perfectly confident that it was work. I never doubted. I really did say, you underestimate your training, sir. It was just like he'd, he'd worked so hard to keep us positive. At one point he said, <clears throat> He was very serious about it. He said, even when we win, he said, <clears throat> we mustn't gloat. He said, I said, sir, not even a little in private. He said, not even a little in private. <laughs> because the consciousness is everything. Even, you know, it's like, this is not our religion. Is not an angry protest against injustice. It's, it has to be joyful. Because if it's not joyful, it's not our path. 
So it's very, that's very tricky, isn't it? A, sometimes a courageous stand against injustice is called for, but it should be revealed joyfully. Yeah. And once again, there you are. That's, that's the criteria we have to ask ourselves. In Saint, when St. Anthony uh, came out of the desert and he was called out to help a theological dispute that was happening in the church, uh, yeah, I, I'm, let's see, oh, this was St. Anthony. At the same time, people were being thrown to the lions around that time. And because he had so much magnetism, he was able to walk in and out of where the Christians were being held. Nobody stopped him. But when he went to where the Christians were about to be killed, martyred, he didn't try to rescue them. And, and he didn't in any way even try to get them to resist. He just helped them to courageously sacrifice their lives for what they believed. You know, and he must have done it joyfully because that's the only thing that gives you courage. I mean, that's what gives you courage is a, a sense of of nobility in what you're about to do and, and the honor of doing it. I mean, that's, I mean, it's a big test for people you can imagine to just know that in a matter of hours, you'll face this. Master says that if you go to martyrdom with faith, you don't suffer. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you think about it, even when you have a car crash, oftentimes people will say, if they, if they have an experience, that just before the moment of impact, they leave their body, and then they watch the thing happen. And then sometimes later they'll come back, even if it's not an actual death experience. Because the soul knows what's about to happen and like, what is the point of staying there? And Edgar Cayce tells that story about being in some building and the door opened to the elevator and he started to step in, but just instinctively stepped back without having a conscious thought about why. The door closed and the cable broke and the elevator crashed and everyone died. And, I mean, it all, all that would have happened in a matter of seconds. But he realized that the people in the elevator did not have auras, which he was accustomed to seeing. Because in, in a matter of seconds, they were all going to be separated from their bodies, so their soul had already pulled out and the energy wasn't there anymore. Which is, it's a very uh, deep and beautiful thought to keep in mind in terms of fear of all kinds of uh, tragic or difficult endings to our lives, which may come. I mean, certainly I've even seen it sometimes when you're with somebody who's very sick or someone who's been in an accident and they appear to be suffering. But often afterwards, they'll tell you they have no memory at all of that experience. And what, what you're watching from the outside they may, they may not have had a transcendent experience, but very often they, they just don't know what, what you watched and thought was happening. I've often said that to people when people are dying. Um, Dr. Peter said at one point, sort of like it's the body's instinctive resistance. It's not even, it's not even like the conscious mind, you know, where there's a struggle to breathe or something like that that my observation is the soul is so far away from the body at that point, if it's at the end of life, that the body is just kind of, has a mind of its own, if you could say such a thing, and that the soul is, is, 
has disidentified with the body to such an extent that they're not experiencing it as we imagine. I have no solid grounds for saying that, but that is the impression that I've had all the way through, which is it's very eases, eases a person's fear and anxiety if you're um, doing a vigil with someone like that. And also, you know, the, the fact that this path is really a path of joy is, is a fact that, that one has to hold in front of oneself at all times. Because sometimes either what's going on in the world as a whole or what's going on in your individual life will, will, will work very hard to persuade you otherwise. So the, the, the constant, this is again, the constant coming back that this is not about fighting the evil in the world, this is about feeling the joy of God behind everything. And these are the principles. And if, if I'm not doing that, then somehow I've lost the thread of the path I'm on and I need to be able to come back to it. Even if, sincerely and authentically, you don't know where it is right now. There's a difference between... See, what it's tempting... What, well, it, in this context, I, I, I used to watch this a lot in the early years of our community because people didn't want to fail at what they were trying to do or they were accustomed to, to being first in the class. <laughs> if they couldn't really reach the highest level of the spiritual teaching, they would just lower the, lower the mountain <laughs> so they could feel that they were standing on the top of it. Meaning... Uh, asking less of ourselves by changing the teachings so that we'll have succeeded. And so a very, very challenging part of the path is to recognize how high the mountain is and not be either frightened of that potential or depressed by one's lack of ability to live up to it. So, so you, you have to just call it what it is and then just recognize that I'll just go a step at a time toward it. So that's where just this path is joyfully revealed. And if it's not joyfully revealed, it's because I haven't quite yet mastered it. But we will. We must. In conclusion, he said, was to show all humanity that human life should be divine service and not self-aggrandizement. Yeah, there you have it. <laughs> Maya is very persuasive, though. And so we just have to keep working with that over and over again. And it's another one of those where you have to make haste slowly. Because if we push ourselves beyond our foundation, a friend of mine had built a little cottage on the steep hillside below where Swami's house is. This was the time when you could just kind of go out there and hammer something together before we were... Well, before the county started um, fly, doing flyovers, <laughs> before they had airplanes and you could stick things in the woods and no one would know, now they fly over and see everything. But in that place, and he built this little thing, he hand-built it, and he got it fixed up just the way he wanted to, and then one day it just fell down the mountain <laughs> because it just wasn't, fortunately he wasn't in it, but it just rolled down the hill. Swami actually was afraid that his dome was going to go down the hill too, after it had been there five or six years, he went and found that some of the pillars that were supposed to hold it up were actually not really connected anymore. They were just loose. And he had big crowds in there. 
So he, he built a room underneath it, which became his bedroom. But he did that also so that the whole thing wouldn't just f- go down the hill. But my friend, after his house went down the hill, it was distressing. But he also said it was a perfect analogy for his spiritual life. <laughs> he said he, he realized that he was all on the surface and he really had no foundation. You know, he was just trying to match himself to the picture and he really had, hadn't, wasn't bringing his true self up from where it was. He was just trying to look good. So it's, it's very, uh, it's very actually extremely interesting. When I came to the path when I was 22, when I met Swami, I really didn't know if I would become bored after a few years because many things that I had tried already, even at that young age, had evaporated very quickly. And so I really didn't know whether this one would, but what happens with this path is it just, it, well, it's infinite, literally. But, you, you know, as soon as you get close to it, to any part of it, what happens at that point is something else is joyfully revealed. <laughs> and then you realize, oh, there's another step beyond. Even just this life is not for self-aggrandizement, but for service. You know, one thinks one is pretty generous and pretty nice, but then you just discover other levels. Sister Gyanamata talked about, she said, even uh, those things that were that harmed no one that were mine by right. I love the way she phrases that. She said, even those had to be surrendered because that just that little bit from her uh, state of spiritual purity uh, was an aberration in her complete acceptance, her complete merging into God. And it's, it, it, we don't know that until we're there. So again, it doesn't serve us. Um, it doesn't serve us to do it intellectually. We have to do it. The way Swami answered the question when someone asked him, how much discipline is enough discipline? He said, that which you can do joyfully. And he said, and if you begin to resent it, or you begin to feel strained and unhappy, he said, you should loosen, loosen the screws a little and back up. And, and that doesn't mean, you have to understand, joyful is not necessarily pleasurable because there's a place also for discipline. But you have to understand why you're disciplining yourself and recognize that I'm doing this because I know what it's going to bring me and it's worth it to me. I think of it in terms of like if you're training for an athletic event or if you have the potential to be an Olympiad in some way or even just win the spelling bee, you know, or you really want to learn to play the, uh, the piano or the cello or sing, you may have to do things that are not in themselves that much fun. And you may have to put aside other things that would be more enjoyable in the moment. And, and you may resent it even sometimes, but you know what you're doing. You know that this will lead to that, and whatever it takes here, I, want it, I, I know that I want it there. And that's what he means. That's enough. If you lose track of why you're doing it, and, and discipline becomes sort of like, this is how I please God, is by restraining myself and making myself suffer. This is what the Catholics call over-scrupulosity. 
where where you get confused about this is a means to an end, not an end in itself. And one just began. I mean, you know, I remember when I went through that, and Swami was. I just, you know, I, I began to feel that God was a tyrant, and everything that I was inclined to do, I couldn't do because it wasn't right. Then Swami said to me, "God does not want you to be unhappy. That's your imposition on this." And I was just thinking, if I was unhappy, I must be spiritual. You know, it gets, the mind gets very confused. But that's when you, you back up to the point where I know what I'm doing. It's worth it to me. And as long as you can feel that, then you should keep going. And you should push that as far as you can push it, but not farther. Because what happens is, you see, then you lose everything. I've, I've, over the many years I've seen this, people will just go, what Master used to call such people, straw fires that they would burn very hot, but then they would use up all the fuel and it would just be over because they would just throw themselves in way beyond where their actual self was. And then they would just literally just burn out. And then, then, they, would, then they would develop a picture of what it meant to be part of the spiritual path that was so arduous and impossible that they just had to repudiate the whole path. I was saying this morning I heard an... A, a, another teacher was answering a question and the question was how do I overcome resistance to the spiritual path and it was it was a very interesting answer I'm not sure it's a total answer but it was a good one he said what is there to resist you have you're standing where you are and you you take one step I said what is what is you know how can you suffer from just one step you should take the step that's the right size for you and that's the step you take what people resist is this idea of something that is really not appropriate for them. Because if, if, you, if you're resisting it, you should do something else. Swami's remark to me once was, well, so much for theory, let's work with reality. And then the, the, what followed that is, what can you do? Because I had to say that I wasn't succeeding at what he'd suggested. He said, well, what can you do? And we just came up with plan B. And then I could, I could do plan B, and that was fine. You just take whatever step you can. And this is the same thing with too much discipline. I'm supposed to be like that, therefore I must be like that, and therefore I have to be like that tomorrow. And then pretty soon you hate the spiritual path and you leave. <laughs> and, you, and then later, I mean, I've, I've talked to people like this who will tell me these incredibly convoluted stories about what they thought was happening, you know, 10 or 15 years ago when they fled. And it was like, it was never happening. I thought, you know, people, I, I felt that I had to do this and I didn't feel up to it and people were thinking about me like this. Wow, not really. None of that was happening, but we spin it in our own heads. So if it's not being joyfully revealed, we need to back up until it is. All right. So, any other questions? And then, I think I made this point about the monastery, but... What the, what the monastery, see, what, what, what happens now with Master's teaching, it's very, it's very complicated because we're getting several different threads and different interpretations of what Master means, and we'll get more and more as time passes. Swamiji, one of the reasons Swami wrote so extensively and on so many different topics is because he felt it would be better if someone who actually knew Master interpreted his intentions rather than waiting until generations of people who had never met him tried to interpret it. So it's not merely that I 
you know, have a personal loyalty and respect for Swamiji. But he, 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 it, it, was the, it was the job that he felt really called by Master to do, which no other disciple has done, which is to talk about money and marriage and art and education and communities and, I mean, on and on. You need to just go through all of his books, Secrets of Persuasion, you know. It's just like he, uh, Secrets for Men, Secrets for Women. These are little tiny books with 30 aphorisms in them, but they're astonishing. They're really astonishing the degree to which he just really outlines supportive leadership, creative leadership. Um, <clears throat> so that now and in the future, if anybody has an interest in being and expressing master's vibration through any of those fields, Swami has delineated a great deal. And the way he delineates is seminal rather than comprehensive, meaning it leaves you a lot of space. And also, um, he gives you reasons. So it's, it's not like you just have to memorize a dogma. He explains to you why, this, why, he, why he feels that this was Master's intention, what the reasons behind it are, which also then allow you to take the thread and, and stay in tune even though you go way over here because you've got principles to guide you, not just dogmas. So even the very idea which has been put forth strongly by SRF that Master came to start a monastery and whether they will continue with that into the future, I don't know because you know the leadership in in that organization has recently changed. But they were very emphatic about it that, you know, Master came to start a monastery so where does that leave everyone else? And so you have to really... Th- it, 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 it Differences of opinion throw us back on our own intuition. And intuition with common sense and intuition with devotion and intuition with respect. But we have to be, we have to be prepared to be able to think. Otherwise it's very hard to be on the path of self-realization. All right, let's take a little five-minute break, and then we'll come back. Does anyone have any questions or comments before we go forward? All right, let's finish with, well, let's progress through number 308. Um, Swami goes on to say, for all these purposes, these purposes are the things we were talking about before, art, education, joyful revelation, self-offering, For all these purposes, earnest workers were needed. I love that phrase, earnest workers. Swamiji, you know, because I've done a lot of writing myself, he could have just said workers were needed, but he he wrote earnest workers. You know, just to give you an idea, just, just giving you more, that it's not enough just to be working. You have to be earnest about it. Pardon me? Serial. Serious workers. Earnest but earnest is a very good word. Um, for all these purposes, earnest workers were needed and not only meditating monks and nuns. He doesn't say that meditating monks and nuns are not needed, but there's the contemplative life and there's the active life. And so it wasn't, he didn't, again, you see, there can be a great avatar who is just calling people to meditate. I mean, a great teacher or spiritual leader. An avatar is more likely 
an avatar, by definition, impacts the course of history. So an avatar is going to have a more outward impact. But there can be great self-realized masters who call their disciples together to meditate. And they may even be serving the world in an enormous way by doing it, but it's another kind of path. These are, again, extremely important things for us to understand as disciples. For all these purposes, earnest workers were needed and not only meditating monks and nuns. Um, It was as though he viewed the high truths he had brought to the world as a flow downward from the spiritual heights like the Ganges descending from the lofty Himalayas to the plains below and from there on to the sea. Meaning it wasn't enough to just be meditating and be in, even in samadhi. Those truths had to be carried all the way down. And that's why earnest workers are needed. Because somebody has to do that. Somebody has to go out into the marketplace. If you're just going to be alone meditating, you're doing something perfectly valid but just something else. And if you're called to this path, you have to consider what role you're supposed to play in it. Now, of course, Rajasi just meditated. And Rajasi had a small center wherever he was in St. Louis, and Master told him to close it because that just wasn't the work he was supposed to do. And Sister Gyanamata Swamiji pointed out, well, she, she never was a teacher. Or, you know, she never, Master never had her do any outward work because they were both past it. But for the rest of us, you know, earnest workers are needed. First in this downward flow was Babaji's commission to Lahiri Mahashaya. Babaji, though world remote like the god Shiva, responded to people's desires for enlightenment in both east and west. Vibrations that he said came to him flood-like from afar. Um... That's just such a beautiful thought. You know, Babaji's way up there in the Himalayas, remote like Shiva. And yet, he's, he's so sensitively attuned that there's all this spiritual longing. A prayer of love went up from earth and God responded. There's, that's from the festival. There's just this, this energy and all of us, you know, before we even knew what we were longing for, goes up a, uh, a prayer of wordless yearning is also that phrase in the festival. And I'm sure all of us who eventually come to this path, you can look back at your earlier life before you were here and you realize that without having the words, this is what you were trying to do. This morning we were having a different discussion and I, um, I, I, once I got onto the spiritual path and I met Swami and I began to understand, I could tell that from my virtually my earliest memories, I always had the same intention. I just didn't know what to call it for until I got the vocabulary and the understanding. But I was always the same. And it was that longing that, of course, brought me to the spiritual path But it was also that longing from me and from all of you and from countless others that caused Babaji to bring Lahiri and and start this flow of energy because we're magnetizing it from this side. It's I mean, in a very small way, Swami would often say when after he would give a talk, he would he would say, 
you know, and I mean, I'll say it for myself too. It's like the audience determines in the way that Swami has trained us to teach. We're not college professors who just read our outline regardless of who's in the room and give the same course, you know, semester after semester. We just walk in with a very open potential. And so what is articulated is dependent on who's in front. I mean, that side of the, of the microphone, so to speak. Because it's your questions that inspire whatever thoughts I say. That's why people will say, oh, we were just talking about what you were saying, or I was just thinking about this this morning. I said, yeah, thank you, otherwise I'd have nothing to say. And if the audience is dull or uninterested, it's pretty hard to whip up any enthusiasm from this side either, because there's no flow of energy. And the reason I'm articulating that is everything that we can see in a, in a microcosm is because it's the same principle. So when we talk about Babaji and the Himalayas feeling these vibrations, it's not different than when you walk into the room and you suddenly feel that somebody really has something to say to you or you feel drawn to something. It's, it's just, we're just responding to this. But on a very large scale, the whole planet is trying to wake up and many souls are being born here who are here to participate in Dwapara Yuga and therefore are, are, and are spiritually ready for self-realization. Otherwise, there, none of this would be happening. So Babaji got those flood-like vibrations. I mean, the, the vibrations came like a flood. The line of gurus brought the teaching out progressively into the world. That progression ended in Paramahansa Yogananda, who had the charge of bringing these divine teachings to society itself. I was um, reading Phil Goldberg's book, finally, about Master's life, and I'm reading the part about him traveling around the United States, and just how dynamically he went across the country and put on these huge lectures and spoke to so many people. He brought the teachings to society itself. He didn't just, at the beginning, he didn't just sit somewhere even and just wait. Lahiri Mahashaya came, he, Lahiri Mahashaya did not get to stay in the Himalayas with Babaji. He had to go back to Varanasi. But once he went to Varanasi, he basically sat there and he radiated this spirituality and people in the end thousands of people ended up coming to him but he never moved I mean even toward the end of his life literally he didn't move he just sat in his living room and initiated people Sri Yukteswar trained master but then master came to America and traveled all over the country and advertised and had newspaper articles and just this you know did this huge outward effort I mean think about it was and it was so unusual he came under criticism for it too because some people thought it was unseemly and even Sri Yukteswar questioned you know if he was diluting the teachings by presenting them to society as a whole but that was his job that's what he was supposed to do and he the way Swami described it Master responded to opportunities as they presented himself, themselves. And that's, Swami was talking about himself. It wasn't really that he had a plan. It's that whenever an opportunity would come, the way Swami described himself, 
he would feel whether that opportunity um, was in tune with the vibration that he was trying to present. And if it was in tune with the vibration, then he would go with it. For example, in the late 80s, when he met this charismatic Catholic group, the early 80s, this charismatic Catholic group in Italy, he felt that there was a chance that through them, who were very active in the Catholic Church, this teaching could be taken in to the, into the Catholic Church, into the Christian churches. In the end, it didn't work. Um, it just it wasn't meant by God to happen. But Swami just described it as an opportunity that might work. So he would just try it and see whether or not good could come of it. And he said, Master tried many things, and, and many of them didn't work. When you, if you ever get the chance to look at very early SRF magazines, um, they have all these little advertisements in there for all these little enterprises that you gradually realize are all SRF's enterprises. But there's a carrot juice factory, there's a, a goat milk farm, there's a papaya grove, and then there's this little thing called the Temple of Silence, which is this little device that plugs in your ears and then it has a little star that kind of bounces in front of you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It was like an early set of headphones and he manufactured them, the Temple of Silence. It was, it was really just headphones on a headband, I mean, earplugs on a headband, but he added in the little star. <laughs> but I mean, he was very creative. It's like, why not? He was just always looking for another way to do it. And of course, he wrote songs and he wrote poems and he published books and, and, uh, and he gave lectures. You know, the, 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 my favorite, and I can't remember the exact words, but the words were something like, you know, uh, divine healing vibrations by the power of God in Christ will be administered to the whole auditorium. And then parentheses, it says, bring your sick friends. <laughs> but he was bringing it to society as a whole. He was just showing them that something completely new was possible. He was blowing people's minds before that phrase was popular. Because that was his job. But the progression, it, it built slowly. And this is, this is a more subtle thing. It's like because there was all that power behind him, we were talking this morning also in a way that I'm still just thinking through, but it's really interesting to think about it. When I was writing uh, this whole story of Swami's life, which of course I've just finished, um, many times in there, right from the very early beginning, I, I described Swamiji when I first met him in uh, 1970 and 71, when I would, went to Ananda village first, and he was the only he was the main, almost the only one ever giving classes and teaching. A few other people did, but he did everything. And he was so intense. And he, he spoke, um, in, in the last decade when many of you knew him, uh, uh, some of you knew him earlier also, but he, he just, his manner had changed. But at the beginning, he was so forceful and he talked pretty fast. And the pitch of his voice was a little bit higher and he just absolutely buried you in ideas. You know, you just, you didn't have a chance. It just came like a, a it, it was marvelous, but it was so big. And I, I felt, I, the way I felt about it, and I described it, it was like he was on a one-person crusade to eliminate all delusion on the planet. You know, and he was just trying to get all these ideas across. But later I really understood he, he, it was exactly that. He was introducing, basically to the planet through us, 
these ideas. And it was a war on the, on the causal plane, on the level of ideas. He was master soldier. And when, you know, when it was William and it was Fernando III, it was literally with swords and mallets and bows and arrows that they were fighting. Now it had come to the level of ideas that, that he was introducing the West. Master did and then Swami after him. Introducing the West, we didn't know anything. Karma, reincarnation, the chakras, kundalini, what to speak of kriya and vrittis and even the concept of guru itself. We didn't know any of it. And he had to just start from scratch and just get through to our minds. And the truth is, even in India, where the concepts were known, they have all, they've all been changed over time. So Master's teaching of self-realization is not understood in India. The words are more familiar. There's, there may be a greater receptivity to it, but it's different. It's very different. I didn't know that till many years later. But because he knew that you start, you start on the subtle levels. And what we were talking about this morning is that we tend to think of the material world as the biggest and most important. Whereas, in fact, in, in the way things are created, it starts from the causal, which is the realm of thought and ideas. It goes into the astral, in which energy is applied to bring those ideas into greater manifestation. And then finally, it has a material form. But the material form is the last point. And it, if you don't start with the idea, and if you don't have the idea powerful and clear, you never get the material manifestation. And the, the material manifestation is actually the end of the cycle, rather than the beginning of it. And so, uh, the, the, the one thought that uh, occurred to me today was, and I, I, I thought about this slightly differently later, um, by the time something is manifesting, whatever is going to come after it is already in the pipeline. You, know, you understand? So, so even if you're looking at war or cataclysm or, or whatever, it can be going on for a while. That doesn't mean that these cycles are short. But by definition, there's, all, there's going to be another force behind it. And since we're in an ascending yuga, that means that, that each, each successive wave is going to push society as a whole to higher and higher toward that. So rather becoming, than becoming terribly distressed when these negative things, whatever form they take, begin to manifest, it's like, well, that force is now finally beginning to express itself. I mean, Swami's been saying for a very long time, just based on the music that's popular, that the world is just pushing for an explosion. And you can see that the music is just getting worse and worse and more and more dissonant and it's just, it's just a sign of people's consciousness, plus music reflects consciousness and creates it. So people listening to all of this and seeing, you know, the movies and the um, television shows and so on. When I was sick in bed last January, I found uh, some series of things on a PBS station television video. And there was this one series that, w- that took place in India... And it actually, it started out really nice. I really enjoyed it because it was sort of a world that I'm... It was India before independence, so it was the English in India. It started out very nice. 
But then it just got darker and darker and darker until I just, I, I realized I was, I was just feeling so tense every time I watched it because something horrible, something even worse was going to happen. I mean, it didn't take me long to realize, you know, this isn't for me. But so much of what people are doing, I mean, all of that really dark entertainment, talk about, you know, art is not for entertainment, it's not even for entertainment, it's just for disintegration. But that means that there's already something in the pipeline that's going to replace it when it finishes. And what I, let's see, what was the other thought? Oh yes, this was the most important related thought. At some point, Swami made the, made the comment, he said, um, he said, if you're going to judge yourself, and he said, and I don't recommend that you do, he said, realizing that whatever you are presently manifesting in the moment you manifest it, it's already behind you. Because by the time you say it, or you are that, all of the force, it's come out, but now something else is, is coming. And then in that particular context, he said, you should never think of yourself in less than... Well, he said, just said, don't judge it. Oh, I know what he said. He said, if you're going to judge yourself at all, judge yourself by your aspirations because that is more truly who you are than anything that you've done because what you aspire to is what you are now creating and that's, that's what you're going to be. Isn't that a beautiful way to put it? But that's the causal astral. If you have become persuaded that I am a devotee of God and I'm going to realize God, that I want to be a disciple, I want to serve this work, I believe I should not live for self-aggrandizement, but for, but for service. Even if you're manifesting selfishness, what you aspire to is what is behind you and is going to come out later. I think it was the Dalai Lama or someone said, if you're going to think about your own life, he said, never measure it in less than 10-year cycles, which I thought was also very good, because if you look at yourself now and look at yourself at a decade ago, anyone who has been sincere at all in their efforts will see, oh, look, I'm... Look how much I've grown. If you look at yourself from yesterday to this morning, you might be a little depressed. <laughs> but from a decade ago to now, you can see how much has happened. Causal astral material. Isn't that a good way to look at it? And then there it is, Babaji Lahiri, Sri Yukteswar Master. Babaji's way up in the Himalayas, and Master is traveling around to all the cities in America, and then Swami Kriyananda is taking it a step further and taking all those ideas, material success through yoga principles, money magnetism, creative leadership, you know, just one more step so that every area of life is now inspired with these joyfully revealed teachings. All right? Very important. So, the master told me of a discussion he had with his guru, Swami Sri Yukteswar, in 1935. Master said, I saw how badly his ashram was in need of proper care. You, you just, it, it's just so fun to think about that, you know. It's just, in India, they're, not, they're much less, uh, as Swami said, if you're too poor in America, they think there's something wrong with your teaching. <laughs> but in India, he said, they respect you for being impoverished. He said, there was a house, there was a loose tile on the roof, which my master had said to me many years earlier, would be safe there as long as I am alive. In fact, it fell down on the day Sri Yukteswar died. Wow. 
Master saying, I offered on my return to India to pay for the needed repairs. Don't bother with them, Sri Yukteswar answered. That's your world out there. My world is here. See, I have my bed and my meditation seat. That is all I need. This is so beautiful. And Swami Sri Yukteswar didn't intend this statement to be a criticism of his disciple. He wasn't accusing him of worldly attachment. Rather, the work his disciple was doing out there was his ordained duty. It was simply not his guru's own duty. So once again, it all gets thrown back on the individual and your intuition too. Part of the what happens at Ananda in general is there's so many fun things to do. You have to decide which ones are yours. <laughs> and sometimes it, that takes a little discernment after time. The Master emphasizes the need for workers in the field. To me, speaking of his school in Ranchi, he said, I found that most of the boys, after receiving a spiritual education, went back to their families into a worldly life. They took jobs, married, and became to all intents, to all intents lost to this greater cause, which they might otherwise have served. What we have now is better. People come to us of their own accord after they've grown up and are free to make their own life decisions. In this way, we can train them wholly in our ideals. This is what the world needs now. So, for that reason, in America, Master started a school for children at Mount Washington right away. He was just, that's what he'd done in India, so that's what he did here. But first he couldn't get students because he said, first I have to train the parents as to why they would want to send their children. But also he saw that for what he needed in his lifetime, he needed adults who would work with him. The rhythm of training children was not for him. That doesn't mean he didn't want it done, but it was not for him to do. From these words, as well as from other conversations I had with him, I understood that his interest was not only in attracting souls with a desire to dedicate themselves to seeking God, but also those who would serve his mission. Well, that's just a really important point. I mean, I went through that with Swami. My first time with him was I was just there to learn from him. And then after a while, I noticed that he was working awfully hard to build Ananda, and I was just sitting there trying to see what I could get from him. And it crossed my mind that he was setting an example that It crossed my mind in two ways. One, that he was trying to show me what it meant to be a disciple, which was to serve this cause. And the second was, just as being a friend to him, he was working so hard on this, and I was being so aloof from it. And I realized that there was something quite uh, inappropriate in not respecting, embracing, and helping him, just, just as a pure act of friendship. Which is, you know, in a certain sense, that that's also what it comes down to. You think Master has given us so much. He's, uh, he's given us these teachings. He's opened the door for us. Swamiji has created Ananda. All of this is here. It's like, how can I give back? And, and you, you, when you, when you get, give somebody a present, you want to give them something that means something to them. You, know, you can't just buy people something that you like, but you know they're not going to want if your friend is a vegetarian, you don't give them a turkey. Because, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just because I like turkey. It doesn't make any sense. 
And so if you think, well, I, I want to express my gratitude to Master, you think, well, what would be a way that would really be meaningful? It would be, I mean, just think of it in human terms. If you have a friend and, and you really want to be a friend to that friend and the friend is moving apartments, you go over and you carry the boxes. You know, the, the friend has a big project that they need to get done. You go over and you help type the paper or, or, or wash the paintbrushes. You know, you help. You help them do what they're doing. And that's how you express true friendship for people. And when you have friends who say, well, good luck, call me when, you, you know, when you're not so busy. It's just, there's no reciprocity. So, so there's, it's, there's something really quite subtle here that's very important. So he, he, I understood that his interest was not only in attracting souls with the desire to dedicate themselves to seeking God, but also those who would serve his mission. So there's a lot implied there. He made it clear to me that what he wanted of me particularly was active service, not withdrawal into the hermit's life, for which, in fact, I had a deep longing. So then you also throw that, because people are always saying, well, I have to see whether I feel to do it or not. Swami had a deep longing to be a hermit. There was nothing in it for him. Master told Swami, your life will be one of intense activity and meditation. It is noteworthy that he placed meditation second. (laughs) Swami would often ruefully comment on that. He also told me once, God won't come to you until the end of life. Death itself is the final sacrifice you have to make. Often, at least in his talks with me, he referred to the spiritual life as martyrdom. Now that's an important point because in light of the necessity for it to be joyfully revealed, he didn't mean martyrdom in the sense of suffering. Because, I mean, for a long time I, I really never understood that. He wasn't meaning martyrdom in the sense of suffering. He meant martyrdom in the sense that, oh, you want to do something else? Too bad. <laughs> I mean, just because when Swami said something about not wanting to be a public speaker, Master said, well, it's what you have to do. You might as well learn to like it. I mean, he just gave him no sympathy. I want this, I don't want that, I feel to do this, I don't feel to do that. Martyrdom is, it's not for self-aggrandizement. It's not because we say, oh, I get a lot out of doing this. It's because it needs to be done. Because Master wants workers in the field. And if you're going to take on a job, you just take it on. You don't think about what I'm going to get back from it. You just think, what can I give? And of course, and that's what you get back from it is that you overcome all of those ideas of all of that stuff. And you have a great deal of fun doing it. The ego is what dies. She was saying, you think of a martyr as death, and what it's the death of self-will is what it is. I mean, death symbolizes the necessity to let go of that which you consider most valuable, which would be your life itself. And you, you realize that even that which you consider most valuable, you don't get to keep. So you, if you back up from that, from Swami's master's comment to Swami, well, you better learn to like it because it's what you have to do. It's like, but it's valuable to me to have, I want it this way. This is how I feel I want it. He says, well, too bad. I mean, all of these things have to be exercised with common sense, but we also have to pick it up from the right string because how do we know what's good for us? 
it's very hard to know what's good for us because we're so bound by what we're accustomed to. We don't even have the imagination to know what's good for us because we don't know it. We're trying to become somebody else. It's very subtle because there's such a thing as superconscious intuition and you can know, but there's also such a thing as subconscious intuition, which also feels right because it's very consistent with who you already are. But it won't necessarily take you any higher. It'll just allow you to do exactly what you already are doing. It's, it's, it's a very, very fine line that we have to walk. And that's why Swami says things like that. Master, I don't, I don't want to teach, Master. I'm afraid of, I just, it means nothing to me. Well, you better learn to like it. Because it needs to be done. I mean, if you're going to serve a project, you don't say, well, I don't really want to carry that box. I want to carry this one. I don't really want to talk. I just want to sit in the back. I don't really want to sing. I don't really, you know, I really don't want to have to go out. I want to stay in my room. Well, too bad. It, you, it, you, I mean, look at the life that these great souls have to lead. And, there's, and they have no reason to do it except to serve us. So then you have to ask yourself, what example is being set for me and how can I rise to it authentically, appropriately, but understanding where we're trying to go, what we're trying to do. Yeah, it's fun. Because heavens, how many lifetimes really matter? Most people's lives are just like riding on water. But when you participate in in an avatar's mission... what you do will actually have an impact. Whereas otherwise, one more incarnation, you know, just down the tube, and then you're off again. I I was told that uh, when Jaya first came to Ananda, he just made that resolution to Master. I don't know what I did before, and I'm not quite sure what may come after, but this life I'm going to do for you. This is an act of friendship, if nothing else. Yeah, this one I'll do for you. And and then you just do. Okay. Oh yes, I just I'm still on three oh eight. We're still in the middle of three oh eight. No, we're toward the end, but we're still in it. I do, because otherwise I won't remember.